For a lot of my Christian life, I felt guilty about what I was not doing in the kingdom of God. Uh, it's not that I, I wasn't a committed Christian, I was. It's not that I wasn't really busy for Jesus' kingdom, I was that too. It's just that no matter how much I did, I always felt like there was so much more to be done. So when the speaker came to talk about how real Christians love the poor, and they do, I started to ask, I mean, what's my relationship got to be? I mean, how do I, am I supposed to live um, in a community with, with the poor? I actually did that at one point. Am I, uh, how much of my money am I supposed to give? Um, when the speaker came along, talked about how real Christians love missions, I thought, well, I got to be involved in that too. Uh, during the first 12 years that I was a Christian, I went to 49 different countries. Um, I heard that real Christians love um, orphans and, uh, and adoption. And so um, because I wasn't married at the time, I thought, well, I've got to you know, at least sponsor some adoptions. And so I um, sponsored some, some children, got really involved in that. And these are all really great things, but it always left me with a sense of no matter how much I was doing, there was so much more to be done. There was always one more girl that needed to be freed from the sex slave trade. There was always one more people group that had never heard the gospel, one more person that had never heard about Jesus. And so I toggled between these summers of feverish activity and these winters of, of, of guilt-ridden despair. I found that many, if not most, Christians feel the same way. They've been told they need to be, be radical and full of crazy love and followers, not fans. And, and these are all true and great and very important messages uh, to hear. But after uh, like a really zealous start, they end up down a radical path feeling overwhelmed by the, by the weight of it all. We read the statement that Jesus made about his burden being easy and his yoke being light, and we honestly have no idea what he is talking about. I've counseled many of these people um, in my office, in college groups, in pastor circles, on the mission field. I think it's a really um, a common problem among Christians. How do we know that we're doing what we are supposed to be doing in the kingdom of God, that we're doing our part? My despair drove me to the scriptures and my study of scripture gave way to one of the most important insights I think I've ever had about ministry. It was a, an insight that turned drudgery into delight, that transformed guilt into freedom and joy. Now let me warn you, it is completely counterintuitive. Brace yourself, here it is, you ready? Here's the great insight. God doesn't need you or me. Never has, never will, not for anything, ever. Ironically, it turns out I had vastly overestimated what I had to contribute. I didn't have more that I needed to give. I didn't have anything that God needed to begin with. See, we serve a God that has no needs. He's a God that spoke universes into existence with a word. He's a God that, that takes five loaves and two fish and feeds 15,000 people. Uh, a, a God who, when he needed a, a tax payment, um, Jesus sends out Peter to catch a fish with the, the, the tax bill in his mouth. Um, a God who, when he wants to build a new kingdom, summons a pagan king to pay for the entire project. God never comes to us hat in hand with saying, please, sir, please donate some money. I, I really have some stuff I want to do in the world. I just can't afford it. Can I borrow some of your money? That is not our God. That would not be a God worthy of worship. In fact, through the prophet Asaph in Psalm 50, um, God mocks the idea that he would ever be in a position of need um, with respect to us. In Psalm 50 verse 12, he says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world is mine and all that is in it 
call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. God does not call to us from a place of need. We call to him. We get the grace, he gets the glory. And we never switch roles. If we ever try to switch roles with God where we look at him as having needs that we're supplying, not only does it insult him, it leads to a burnout and a fatigue in ministry because we're trying to assume an importance in the world that God never intended us to have. We're not co-messiahs, we're not God. God doesn't come to us from a place of need. So let me say it again. God is not now, nor will he ever be looking for helpers to assist him in the things he wants to do in the world. Now, that's not to say that he is not calling us to live radically, generously. It's not saying that he's not gonna use us in, in the world um, and wants to use us. It's just that he never comes to us from a position where he's saying, I need what you have to offer me. He's not short on money, on talent, or on time. He doesn't look to us and say, I need you to save the world for me. He calls us to follow him as he saves the world through us. And that's a huge distinction. I've always thought it was really curious uh, the first command that Jesus gives to his disciples after giving them the Great Commission. Luke 24, 49, Jesus gives the Great Commission, which has to be the largest, most important assignment ever given to a group of people. Um, every people group in the world needs to hear the message of the gospel. And this handful of people that Jesus is addressing um, on the Mount before he ascends are the only people that really know the gospel. And after giving them the Great Commission, the first command Jesus gives them is wait, wait. Millions of people around the world dying without Christ and need to hear the gospel. And Jesus' first command to them is do nothing and wait until the Holy Spirit descends on you. He made them wait for 10 days and not do anything. I mean, think about that. Why would he have had the only people who knew the gospel do nothing until the Holy Spirit came? Well, I think he had them wait the 10 days until the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost to do anything because he wanted them to realize from the beginning that this is not something, the mission is not something they can do for him. It was something they were supposed to yield themselves to the Holy Spirit as he did through them. Now, you and I are not in a position um, where we're still waiting on the Holy Spirit the way the apostles were. When we trust in Jesus as our Savior, we immediately get the Holy Spirit. But the posture they had is supposed to be the same in us. We're supposed to be looking to the Holy Spirit saying not, hey, Jesus, what do you need me to go do for you? But we're supposed to say, Jesus, what do you want to do through me? I want to, to wait on the Holy Spirit and for him to show me um, what he wants me to be doing in ministry. Now, why would, why would it be that way? Why would, why would that be the posture that he, he would want us to be in? Well, here's why. Because Jesus can do more in a moment than we can accomplish in a lifetime. I mean, think of it in John 6 with the feeding of the 5,000. He took, he took a little boy's Lunchable, five loaves and two fish, and he fed in the space of an afternoon what would have taken the disciples, John says, more than eight months all working together to, to, to provide them with just a little bit. He tells us that because we need to get away from good ideas in ministry and start to pursue God ideas. God ideas are things where he puts his miracle power in and he accomplishes more than we can accomplish with all the good ideas in the universe. Uh, and I think a great example of this is in Acts chapter eight with, with Philip. Philip is preaching in Samaria. Lots of people are coming to, to Christ. Um, when the Spirit of God takes him out of Samaria where lots of people are getting saved out into a, a dry and, 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 and barren place where he's supposed to 
to stand on the side of the road and, and wait. And, you know, he stands there in obedience to the Holy Spirit when, when pretty soon a chariot comes by and in that chariot is an Ethiopian eunuch. And in obedience to the Spirit, Philip goes and shares Christ with the Ethiopian eunuch. And, and the Ethiopian eunuch comes to faith in Christ. And church historians tell us that that was the birth of the church in Africa. Here, through one act of obedience, Philip accomplished more than he could accomplish um, in all his strategy and all his, his planning on his own. We got to get away from good ideas in ministry and we got to begin to pursue God ideas. What this means is that instead of asking the question, what needs to be done in the world, what we ought to be asking is, what does the Spirit of God want me to do in the world? How does He want to work through me? In light of that, I want to present two questions I'd love for you to consider. Number one, are you following the Spirit in mission? That's what the Holy Spirit was given for. When the Holy Spirit was first given in Acts chapter 2, it says that He came in like a mighty rushing wind. Sometimes I think we lose a little bit in the English translation there. Greek, Greek scholars say that mighty rushing wind would imply something like a tornado. I remember one time when I was, was really close to where a tornado touched down um, near my home. I was staying over with a friend and, and uh, you know, they always say that it sounds like a freight train and that is exactly what it sounded like. I mean, it was so powerful. We were lying, you know, in the bathroom on our backs. It was, it was, it was terrifying. Well, that's something like what the disciples experience in Acts 2 when the Spirit comes in and floods their hearts. It's not, this wasn't a gentle, serene, religious, sentimental breeze that uh, made them feel warm and fuzzy and filled their heart with, you know, groovy vibes. This was a, a torrential wind that was going to scatter them and blow them to the ends of the earth. If you and I want to walk with the Spirit of God, then we're going to be being moved by Him out into mission. There is no fullness of the Spirit of God that does not translate into um, activity in mission. You hear a lot of people pray, Lord, we just want you to be with us, or uh, a church will pray, God, we just want your presence to be here. Uh, you know, when Jesus gave the Great Commission in Matthew 28, um, he said, I will be with you always to the end of the age, but what goes right before that is go into all the world and preach the gospel. And what that means is that if you want the presence of God in your life or in your church, it means that you've got to be doing what God commanded us to do in, in, in the previous verse. Jesus in John chapter 12 said that if, if we want to follow him, then we're going to be where he is. Well, where is he? Well, the context of John 12 is that Jesus is going to the Gentile nations with the gospel. If you and I want the presence of Jesus and we want to be filled with the Spirit of God, we got to be going to the places that He's going, and that is outside of the church to the lost world with the gospel. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13 said that we must follow Jesus outside the camp. What he meant was that Jesus left the comforts of Jerusalem, and when He died, He died outside the camp. Uh, he, he, he died reaching people that were outside of His sphere of comfort and convenience. If we want to follow Jesus, if we want His presence and His Spirit, then we, like Him, have to leave our comforts. We have to leave the comforts of a, a church even to go um, to the places that He is leading us in the mission. Um, that's where His presence is. And if we want to be full of the Holy Spirit, um, then we're going to be at the places that He's going, which is to the ends of the earth with the gospel. The second question is, have you determined what the Spirit of God wants from you? Have good ideas been replaced by, by God ideas? I love how a friend of mine says it, not everything that comes from heaven has your name on it. Some things do, and you need to figure out what that is, but it's not like the whole mission, um, the whole mission is too big for any one person. God's going to take the mission and He's going to translate it into a few specific visions for your life. Have you determined what that is? And in the next couple of sessions, that's what we're going to talk about is how do we determine what the Spirit of God has for us. Um, but my question that I want you to consider now is, do you know? Do you know 
what the Holy Spirit has for you specifically in the mission. Let me leave you with, with another staggering promise that Jesus gave about the Holy Spirit and one that should just infuse you with a sense of anticipation and hope and a desire to get to know um, what the Spirit of God has for you. At John 14, 12, Jesus said, greater works than he did, his followers would do. Now, if you think about that, greater works than Jesus? I mean, anybody done a greater work than Jesus? Anybody raise the dead or walk on water or anybody multiply loaves and fish? Anybody pray with greater clarity or preach with greater insight? Of course not. How could our works be greater? They're greater in the sense that we were proclaiming Jesus' salvation and the same power of the Spirit that Jesus did his ministry with. You see, the point of Jesus' miracles was not just you know, temporarily feeding a multitude. The point was showing that he was the bread of life. Um, well, when we testify to that in the power of the Spirit, we are fulfilling uh, the point that he did the miracle for. It's also greater in the sense that now that Jesus has gone to heaven and the, the Holy Spirit rests upon every individual believer, the power of the Spirit is multiplied millions of times because it is in every person who is filled with the Spirit. When Jesus was here, the Spirit of God's power was sitting on top of one person that was contained in one place. Now that Jesus has gone back and the Holy Spirit is in all of us, anywhere the body of Christ goes, the power of Jesus goes. So if you will discover what the Spirit of God has for you, it's, it's, it's gonna be greater than what Jesus accomplished on earth because He is multiplied and spread out in, in millions of, of people who are working in the same power that He has. So our works are greater in their reach than than, than Jesus's was when he was limited to one locale there in Israel. When you discover where Jesus wants to use you in these greater works, how he wants to fill you to transform your world, that becomes one of the most um, important discoveries, one of the most exciting adventures you'll ever get into in life. I would encourage you to plunge in it deeply because it really will transform your life and the world around you.